Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Um, So is it's hey, I heard it that time. Did you get it that time? Sandy you with me over here? Yeah. <laughs> um you really experienced a living illustration of that this morning. you know, one joke I could have made coming up here was boy, Darren really earned his pay this week. And the reality is Darren is a non staff elder. He doesn't he doesn't get paid at all. He works a full time job, and this week I know specifically he worked a full time job, and then he and I met uh, as we meet, as our practice every other Friday, as elders, we get together and, frankly, we talk and, and express concern about you guys and work through church life. And so we spent two and a half hours doing that Friday on his day off. And then he went and had a discipleship meeting with somebody. Uh, and then I called him late last night and he said, yes, I'll lead singing, which you are much more grateful for that than you realize. Um, he's now teaching children's church. And he's going to lead our prayer time afterwards. That is receiving ministry of Christ through somebody. That's what that is. That's using areas he's gifted in and not gifted in, but just out of a willing heart to love this flock. Uh, over the years as a pastor, I, I know I've joked with Wayne about this before. You'll have sometimes, sometimes folks will express gratitude to you. Uh, and when they express gratitude, they'll say things like this. Now, I don't want you to get a big head, but that sermon was a blessing. Now, I just want you to know, imagine if you said that to a stay-at-home mom. Now, I don't want you to get a big head, but you're doing a good job being a parent. Uh, Father's Day. I don't want you to get a big head, but you're a good dad. Uh, I don't want you to get a big head, but you're a great employee. I don't want you to get a big head, but you're... Like, we would never do that, would we? Because it immediately pulls out from the gratitude statements. If you're afraid someone is going to get proud... Because you simply express gratitude, you'll not express gratitude. And I assure you, in the lives of pastors, most pastors, they hear about a thousand times more criticism for every one piece of gratitude. Now, why am I saying this to you? I'm not saying this to you for me. I'm saying this to you. You should express gratitude to Darren today. You should go to him and you should thank him. And you should thank him for sacrificial service because what you just experienced was Christ. Um, and Darren would be very quick to, to know that and acknowledge that. And gratitude does fuel, doesn't it? It encourages us. That's, in that word, if you break that down, literally it means to give courage, which is huge, right? Because we all will wrestle with fears at some time. So I just want to encourage you in that, give you courage to do that and express that to you. Darren would never say that on his own behalf. But I want to say that on his behalf and how profoundly grateful I am for him. When I called him last night, um, and he just started laughing. Went on the face of course, you know, this is like COVID days almost. But um, I'm thankful for it, and I, I think he did a wonderful job, honestly. And uh, I way better than what I would have done, no question, no question. So that's a living illustration of some of what we're working through the summer about. And this is um, a very different kind of venue. Uh, those of you, some of you, have been in the church long enough to remember. Uh, almost every Sunday night, I would teach from the floor and work through things this way. Um, and so very abnormal for me on a Sunday morning 
Uh, it'll be switched up different weeks, but certain ones will be a little easier for me to present the material and work through the material with you. I think a little bit more of a casual way. Um, this is not some bold move and change of radical direction. It's none of those things. So if you're prone to fear those things, this is not what that is. So worry not, worry not. So um, I've been here 17 years. You should know me now well enough to know if I change something, I teach you before I change it. So um, that you can trust that. So Romans chapter 6, though. We are actually even very unusually for a sermon. There's actually even going to be two points. We'll do a little interaction this morning, but I think it'll help us to remember it. But Romans chapter 6, I'm going to pick up in verse 5, and I'll read down through verse 14. We're building on some of what we learned last week. We really ended last week with a definition of what union in Christ means. And we want to build and push forward in that concept a little bit this morning. I trust by God's grace it'll continue to be an encouragement to you. And ultimately, my goal would be that God use this truth to change the way even you view and approach life. So Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Paul writes this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Can't win this morning. Boom. Look at this. It's amazing. Satan does not want you to get this information this morning. That's how I take that. That's how I'm interpreting that. Um, big idea this morning wants to walk away with. Union with Christ is a spiritual truth that we need to and we can connect to our daily struggles. I, I'm not interested in, in part of the reason when I went to seminary, I got a master's degree in counseling. Um, first, because my own life was a mess and I needed to figure out how does, how does life work. But also because whenever I preached or taught, I wanted to make it real to people. I wanted them to be able to understand, what do I do with this? Not just high-powered, oh, here's living in the clouds, ivory tower kind of thinking. And union with Christ is one of those. Um, union with Christ, in, in my original concept of why I even started on this project and this journey, is because it has everything to do with identity. How you and I think about who we are. And primarily, as Christians... We should think of ourselves as Christ in us, in us in Christ. And that's why last week the most critical question out there is, who are you? Are you in Christ or not? And the doctrinal term for that is union with Christ. But it really has everything to do with identity. So union with Christ is a spiritual truth. It really is. That's unavoidable. It's from the Bible. It's a biblical truth. It deals with our spiritual lives. But we need to, and we can actually connect that to the way you and I do daily life. 
in preparing to teach my uh, teenagers to drive. We've had multiple conversations about mirrors and their purpose and rules of the road, how a car works, and uh, the power of brakes over gas before we ever got in the car. And then when we even got in the car, one of the very first things I did to prove some of this to them was I had them sit down, put their seatbelt on, adjust all the mirrors, figure out how to turn the car on, put their foot on the brake, one foot on the brake, which you never drive this way, but one foot brake mashed down, and the other foot slammed the gas pedal to the floor. Guess what your car does? Nothing. It sits right there and the engine revs high. Brakes are stronger than gas. They, they just are in a car. Um, that's why even if your brakes fail, if they overheat, you can use your emergency brake and you'll be able to bring your car to a stop. I say that not just theoretically, but I've been there, unfortunately. But you load them with all of this information before you ever put them in a seat behind the wheel with keys. There's lots that they need to know. Now, like all of us, it's not uncommon. I certainly was this way. Because I had so much knowledge, I thought knowledge was the practical. I thought I could just get in a car and drive because I understood how it worked. I thought I could just shift gears and learn on a stick shift just because I understood how it worked. But we all understand there, there are these kind of two parts to everything in life. There is the information download that we need, and there's the actual practical use of that information. Knowing is not the same as doing, is it? And that is true in our spiritual lives as well. And so what Paul is going to be doing this morning is trying to build that connection. I want to give you lots of information. I want you to remember this and think this, but I want to begin the process of helping you put this into practice. Now, scientists already know that the more we do that, the better we get at it. The more we do apply what we know, think, the more we remember, the deeper it gets ingrained, and the easier it becomes as a habit pattern. The problem is, like lots of information, it's not uncommon as we get information to think, do I really need that? Is this really necessary? Is this really helpful? I'm sure everyone in this room has sat in a class of some kind, whether it was in grade school or middle school, high school or college, uh, maybe even on a job when someone's giving you information, and you've been thinking, what good is this to me? I'm never going to use this. There was a time I had the periodic table memorized. I had to, to pass an eighth grade science test. I don't remember the periodic table. I remember sitting through algebra classes thinking, I'm never going to use this. Uh, for some of you, maybe it was history classes. I'm never, who cares? I had two years of French. Bonjour, there you go. <laughs> like, there are things that our brains can only hold so much information. So we are subconsciously always evaluating is this really information that I need? What's this going to do for me? And so, what if you ask that about union with Christ? What if when you hear this phrase, or maybe you even heard, uh, I'm going to do an eight-week series on union with Christ, what if there was a part of you that thought, what good is that going to do for me? How is that really going to help me? Now, I want you to know, I don't think that's immature. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's inappropriate. I think that actually sets the stage for me to be able to do a much easier job by proving to you that it matters. Because one of the other things that we've learned is if you can create an obstacle and then overcome it with people, they tend to remember it better. They tend to engage with it a little bit better. So let's ask it together. What practical use is there for me to understand union with Christ? You might even be sitting here thinking things like this. I need help overcoming sin. 
I've got this habitual sin issue in my life, Steve, that I need help with. How is union with Christ going to help me with that? I need help in how to do my singleness. I need help in how to parent, how to do my marriage, how to resolve conflict with others. I need help in how to make financial decisions, how to choose a career. How do, I need help how to handle my obnoxious neighbor, Steve. Is union with Christ able to do any of that with me or for me? Can it actually help me with where I'm living every single day? I need help with my anxiety, my depression, my anger, my lust, my bitterness. I, I need help just with dealing with my past. Can union with Christ help me with that? Well, I just want to point out, in each of those that I just threw out there, what you're asking about are actions. You're, action about, you're actually asking about what do I do? What do I do in my singles? What do I do in my marriage? What do I do in my decision-making? What do I do in my career? What do I do in my education? What do I do, Steve? But what I want you to know is to understand how to deal with your obnoxious neighbor. To understand how to deal with your sin, I've actually got to pack a lot of information into you, then build the bridge before we can get to the connection. Otherwise, it would be like telling you nothing getting in a car with you, handing you the keys and saying, go. And we're both dead in the next three minutes, aren't we? Because without the information to put into practice, you're guaranteed to fail. What if then your struggles and my struggles in all those areas has a lot less to do with how hard we're trying and has a lot more to do with what we don't understand. Well, you know what that gives me? Great hope. Because then I'm like, well, then teach me, Jesus. <laughs> teach me. And I feel a lot more like one of the disciples looking at Jesus saying, where else will we go? You alone have the words of life. Well, I'm not promising you too much to tell you that union with Christ lies at the very core of all of those things. And so I'm burdened to help us to understand that for my own life as well as for yours. So, uh, you know, I had a boss one time. I know it wasn't original with me, but he used to say this. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So uh, we want to aim at something very specific. I've got eight weeks to try to even con convince you more of what I just said to you and help all of us grow and change in these areas. But this week we're going to aim at a very specific target, very narrow target. We want to know the difference between the spiritual and the practical aspects of union with Christ. Where is this spiritual understanding, thinking, reality? And where is this line between how it applies to my life and what I do with, it, do with it? So we want to move from, in this case, theological, not just theoretical, theoretical to the practical and everyday reality. So union with Christ is a spiritual truth that we need to and we can connect to our daily struggles. And we can actually do this in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 14 this morning. So first of all, we see that it's a truth that's declared. Now, there are many ways we can present the gospel to people and many um, appeals that you've probably heard at various times in your life, um, maybe even appeals that were made to you when you came to Christ. We could look at someone and say, you need to repent and believe. Jesus says this in Mark 1.15. The apostles say this. This is a common phrase of their call to the gospel. The call to someone to get saved, to come away from their sin 
and come to Jesus. You need to repent, turn from your sin, turn from the way you think about sin, turn from the actions of sin, turn from the, the heart of sin, the affections of sin, being ruled by sin. You need to turn from it, repent. You need to believe on Christ. You need to believe what Christ said. You need to believe what Christ did. You need to believe on what Christ has claimed and what Christ has called you to. Repent and believe, and that's expressed in following. Well, we could call someone to the gospel by saying that. Will you repent and believe? I've, I've had the opportunity to preach in a number of different places, everything from homeless shelters to prisons to street preaching in Madison, Wisconsin, one of the most liberal cities in the nation, getting yelled at by drunks and homeless people. That was fun. Um, uh, to to a, a top-tier prison outside of Baltimore, preaching to lifers, rapists, murderers, multiple murderers, gang members, gang leaders, to churches and Christian schools uh, at camp settings where they go to a Christian school so they just assume they're all saved. And it's not uncommon that I've called them to repent and believe. If you've been in our church for any length of time, you've heard me say, repent and believe. That's one of the ways we could call people to the gospel. And when we do that, we are emphasizing the words of Christ and the words of the apostles and how they present the gospel. I don't think it's the only way you can do it, though. Um, you certainly can call somebody to pray what we would commonly call the sinner's prayer. Um, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sin deserves hell. I'm under your judgment. I believe that Jesus has died for me and rose again. And he says, if I will confess my sins and turn from them and believe in you, I'll be saved. Will you save me? That would be commonly what we would call the sinner's prayer. Uh, lots of people even will do that in a way that says, repeat after me. I think the most prominent and popular one that did that was Billy Graham. And he would commonly lead people through the sinner's prayer. Um, there's a fair amount of debate about the sinner's prayer that way. Uh, because just we understand that anybody can say words. And so the risk is you say, repeat after me. You say the words, you get to the end and say, now if you said that and believe that you're saved, well, that's a little bit of a risky, that's risky to say that. The reality, though, is lots of people have been saved that way. God has saved people. So, so we want to be careful in our judgment even while we're discerning. But what that does do is it emphasizes the need for confession and calling to God. That's unmistakable. The Bible says you must confess your sin and you must call upon God to be saved. So at the core, it's emphasizing that. That's not wrong. Uh, we might say uh, a gospel plea would be submit to the Lordship of Christ. And Jesus makes this very clear when he says, take up your cross and follow me. That's how he's presenting the gospel to somebody. Take up your cross, follow me. And so it has packed into it that you're a sinner, you now follow Christ, you're turning from your sin, you're obeying, you're repenting, you're believing. But we could use any of these. Um, probably the one that I'm, that's my personal least favorite is ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, commonly used for children. It's my least favorite. Um, it's probably the one I heard the most growing up myself in church. I'd, um, <laughs> I'll never forget, literally, our church, you know, because our church growing up, they never refurbish. You literally could find the pew with my teeth marks on it, teething in the church. Like that's, I was in church every day, every, every week. Uh, it felt like every day. Um, twice on Sunday, oftentimes twice in the midweek, different church activities. And that's the one I heard the most. It's one that you don't find in the Bible. All the others you at least find references in the Bible. But I will say this, what it's trying to emphasize is the affectionate relationship. That's what it's trying to emphasize, an internalizing of the truth. And so my purpose this morning is not pass judgment on these or say this is the one you should use. I do want to turn it, though, to Romans 6. Romans 6, 5, 
Paul says this about salvation. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's actually a gospel statement. That's a statement that is just as clear as if you said, if you repent of your sins and believe in Christ, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth and call upon God, you will be saved. It's just as clear if we have been united, uh, baptized, it said in Romans 6 earlier, put into Jesus' death, then we have been baptized, immersed, put into Jesus' resurrection. So, let's brainstorm for a minute. Here's, here's one of your options. You actually, you're like, Sunday morning, Steve, my coffee's just now sinking in. But I'm going to ask you a question, and we'll, we'll talk about it. And, and don't be afraid. I don't know, I'm, what if I give the wrong answer? I'll just heckle you publicly, and we'll mock you openly. Um, not true, right? Um, but let me ask you this. Let's brainstorm. If we were going to make that truth a call to salvation, how, what are some ways we might say it? What are some ways we might phrase that to someone if we were talking about the gospel to them? Or if we were even explaining how I got saved, what are some things, some of you are cheating and looking at the notes. I see you. So don't look at your notes yet. What are some ways you might say that truth in a way that is talking about the gospel? Because it's not the same as repent and believe, but what are some ways that you might say it? Wheels are turning. Smoke is coming. You're doing good. Yes, Mary. That's great. The truth of Christ, pray for the truth to come in. Like, when we are united with Christ, it is the truth of Christ put into us. Absolutely. That's one way we can express it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody else. How else could we say this? Mary's the only courageous one. <laughs> Beth Ann. My wife. I could trust it. Yes. Great. Die to yourself and your passions to find life in Christ. What if, we, what if we even say it maybe this way? Come and be one with Christ's righteous life by being one with his death. Right? And I think all of these are getting at the same idea. If you die with Jesus, you are raised with Jesus. And someone's going to say, well, what does it mean to die with Jesus? What does it mean to be raised with Jesus? Right? That's I think that's what you would ask. But I think you're going to ask that if, if you tell somebody repent and believe. Well, what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to believe? If you even said, if you ask Jesus in your heart, what does that mean? Jesus come and come live in my heart? Like, how does that functionally happen? A critical truth for Paul to the Romans, this is critical, this is foundational to his thinking. 156 times he uses this phrase, in Christ. A critical truth for Paul to the Romans is that we are made one with Christ in his death and resurrection. Now, without even looking at the rest of the text, where in the world do you think Paul's going to go with that next? If you've just said this, if we're one with his death, we're one with his resurrection, where would you have to go with that next? And um, this is an intentional exercise. It's called a prediction moment. And so whether you answer or not, where would you predict you have to go after you make that statement? Yeah. Explain why. 
I think that's one. Absolutely. Absolutely. You better go there. If you said you must be one with Christ, where else might you go? Aaron? Explain how he resurrected. What does that look like? What does that mean? So explain what does it mean that he died? What does it mean that he resurrected? Okay, well, let's see if Aaron and June are right. They're at risk. Um, but I can say that because they're actually both right. That's exactly where he goes. He understands that you and I don't get that. If that sounded confusing to you, you were one in his death and one in his resurrection, great, you're just like the church at Rome. You're like every other Christian. I need more help, Steve. I need to understand that. Well, let's play a little game here then. What did you have to eat yesterday? Where did you go yesterday? What did you spend time doing yesterday? Um, well, let's even back up further from yesterday. What did you eat last Tuesday for dinner? Where did you go? Some of you are laughing at me, right? Um, unless you eat the same thing every night, my guess is you have no clue. Where did you go? What did you do? You'd have to look at bank receipts. You'd have to look at your calendar on your phone. Well, let's press it even further. What did I do yesterday? What, what did Steve eat last Tuesday? Where did I go? Who did I spend time with? What phone calls did I make? The best you could do is you could say, well, Friday morning, I know you met with Darren for a couple hours because I told you. What if we press it even further? What did the president do? Where did he go? What did he spend time doing? What did he eat? Like, the reality is this. If you don't know, you can't answer. So if I tell you to remember something, I better tell you what to remember, or it becomes a fruitless exercise. Here's the answer with where Paul goes with this next. Before he can apply this vital truth of the believer being united with the death and resurrection of Christ practically, before he can make that link to how, what we do with this truth, he has to make sure that we know what to remember. When I'm sitting with one of my children teaching them to drive, and they, they've both done fantastic. It's, I mean, every driving instruction involves some fear at some moment, whether it's earned or deserved or not, but they've actually both done fantastic. It's not uncommon when we sit in the car, I'm asking them, do you remember this? Do you remember this? Did you remember to click your seatbelt? Did you remember to adjust your mirrors? Did you remember to stay on the right side of the road? Do you remember you need to stay to the left of the center of your lane? Do you remember stopping distance? Like, there's all these questions because until it's seated permanently, till they get to the point, like most of us that are adults that drive, that it's muscle memory, you have to keep reminding them, and they can't remember what they've never been taught. You ever had a teacher give you a quiz before they ever taught you information? That can be an effective teaching tool if it's not used as a grading mechanism. Because it can help the student know what they need to know. Because all of us tend to walk into situations with a little bit of arrogance. I already know this. And so pre-quizzes can help reveal, oh, I don't know this, I need to learn this. If you attach a grade to it though, it's discouraging to a student, it makes them angry. But you've gotta get people to a point where they realize I don't know. And maybe I don't even know what I don't know. So where Paul is going to go is he wants to make sure all that truth is in there, that we remember what we're doing before he can tell us what to do. And so the way I can do that for us this morning as we work our way through these verses more systematically is give us a little bit of a chart that's going to help us. And what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the left side of this chart first 
And then we're going to focus on the right side of this chart. Because as is typical for Paul, if you've ever read Paul and you're like, man, that just seems confusing. That seems way wordier than it needed to be. Um, Paul, it would have been nice if you unpacked that. He does that here. This is dense. It can be tricky. It can feel confusing just on first read through. And so I, I hope that this chart will help us to understand it. On the left side, I've highlighted what it means and the verses and some of the phrases where he's emphasizing what it means to be united in the death of Christ. What does that mean? On the right side, which we'll look at in a few minutes, is what it means to be united in his resurrection. And so we'll kind of work through, first of all, death ends the body of sin. We go back to our passage, Romans 6, verse 5. If we have been united in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Death ends the body of sin. He's saying that we are all born sinners. He's saying that Jesus had a flesh, a physical form. Jesus' physical body died. Our spiritual body dies in Christ. And our first question that would be, well, how does that work? And so Paul's like, I know an illustration that's going to help everybody out. I'll use slavery as an illustration. Um, slavery in Paul's day and in Roman days uh, was substantially different than slavery in the United States. And so that's hard because we tend to think only slavery in the United States as opposed to Roman slavery, and there are a couple of differences that take place. Um, slavery in the United States was rarely, if ever, based on ec economic means. In other words, you didn't sell yourself into slavery, you were stolen into slavery. Slavery in Roman days, you could be stolen into slavery, but it was just as common and even more common that slavery was a result of some kind of economic disaster that you sell yourself into slavery. Slavery in the United States, you really couldn't buy yourself out of it. It was an impossibility. Slavery in Roman days, it was an ever-present possibility to buy yourself, manumission, to buy yourself out of slavery. So there are some key differences. Uh, slavery in the United States, you were treated as subhuman. Slavery in Roman days, you were not viewed as less than human. You were viewed as a human choosing an economic route or having been compelled into this. The dehumanization happened with, when they punished criminals. And so there are some key differences. Slavery in the United States was race-based. Uh, slavery in Roman days was not race-based. And so there, there's all these differences. But the idea, though, that one person is owned by another, therefore under their complete control, is the same. Like, that exists. There were no legal protections for Roman slaves. Uh, they had no legal standing. And so Paul thinks the illustration I can use here to help us understand death in Christ, spiritual death, is slavery. And so this is what he presses in. And you actually see this in a number of ways that he communicates this illustration from slavery. You see it in verse 6, verse 9, and verse 12. So let's just point those out. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's what he's saying. When you and I are lost, we are under the power and the control of sin. We're enslaved to it. What sin says to do, we do. Now, people struggle with this sometimes because they're like, I'm not as bad as I could have been. Right? I was no Hitler. Paul's not saying that everyone's slavery to sin compelled you to do the ultimate evil all the time. 
He is saying, though, that you were under its power and it did rule you so that you couldn't do the opposite. What's the opposite of it? Live righteously. You couldn't. You and I, as sinners, can never live righteously. It's not in our power. It's not in our ability. Um, this is why we are, it's depicted as being dead in sin, but made alive in Christ. Dead people don't do living people things. They don't make ramen for lunch. They, they don't walk around. They don't make cards from others. They don't celebrate Memorial Day. They don't do things. They're dead. When we are in sin, we are thoroughly corrupted. Uh, a theological phrase for that is total depravity. That doesn't mean we live out the totality of our depravity. What it means is that we are completely depraved in our mind, our will, and emotions. We are, and this is the best illustration Paul could come up with, and since the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul, it is the best illustration, we are enslaved to sin. Well, then how do you get out of slavery if you're under its power and control? Well, he tells us, physical death in slavery. How does a slave stop being a slave? They die. That's what you got. He emphasizes it in verses 9 and 12. Again, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will no, no longer, never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. <laughs> if you're in the Roman days and you're a slave and your master's saying, bring me more wine, bring me more food, go out and uh, work the fields, come back in and clean my house, come wash my feet. And you spend all day out working in the field, you're malnourished, you are dehydrated, then you come in and you physically need to sit down and rest. And your master says, come, bring me my wine and wash my feet. And you drop dead of a heart attack. He can yell at you all he wants. You ain't getting up to wash feet and bring wine, are you? It no longer has dominion over you. Death for the slave is freedom from slavery. This is what he's saying. Uh, he emphasizes it again. You can see the word in verse 12. Let not sin, he's going to connect it to our sin in a minute, therefore reign in your mortal body. Sin rules us. Sin reigns over us. Sin dominates us. Sin enslaves us. And physical death is what ends slavery. So the illustration then is we, Jesus dies in its freedom. We die in Christ in its freedom from sin. Death frees from the power and the control of sin. Verses 6 and 7, he uses these, this language. He says it's brought to nothing. In verse 7, no one, one who's died has been set free from sin. Spiritually, the reality then is, prior to salvation, I am enslaved to my sin, how I think, how I feel, what I do, how I function. And when I'm saved, Jesus died, and I die in him, the chains are broken. I no longer have to do the sinful things I used to do. I'm freed from it. I'm no longer controlled by it. So... To be united with the death of Christ is to be freed from the power and control of sin. Now here is what's hard for almost every one of us. 
You know what? Actually, I'll just put it this way. Here's what's hard for every single person in this room who's a believer. That doesn't always feel true to you, does it? You still feel like you have to keep doing the things you do. You feel like you still have to be insecure, angry, bitter, lustful, fighting with an obnoxious neighbor, making unwise marriage, parenting, singleness decisions, sinful decisions even. You, you feel like you still are dominated. Even if this, if this, so if this is true, then what good is it? This truth, though, forms the very basis of the way we even function as Christians. Let me give you an example. If we have someone in our membership, and so what that simply means is, is that they have professed Christ, demonstrated fruits, been baptized, and say, I'm going to join this church. Great. That's what it means. If that person then starts engaging in obvious, overt, wicked behavior, we call them to repent, right? We say you need to turn from that. And if that person then refuses to turn from it, let's make it really simple. The obvious overt sinful behavior is they begin denying the virgin birth of Jesus or that he is God. That's what they deny. That's not true. We don't believe that. They start making an issue of it. They talk about it. We're trying to disciple them. Nope, that's not true. I don't believe it anymore. They won't repent from it. They won't turn from that. What is a church required to do? To discipline them out of the church. Right, to put them out of the church. Based on what? This. It's actually based on this. It's based on the convinced belief that if you are actually saved, you are no longer under the dominion of sin. You don't have to do those things anymore. You can, in the power of Christ, stop that behavior. You can. Your refusal to do so, then, is a demonstration that it's probably not Jesus who's ruling you. This truth lies at the core of the gospel. That when we are saved, it's not that we cease forever sinning, but we are no longer under its power or dominion. It actually shifts a little bit of even the accountability that you, when you think about it. But then there's this other side then, and so where does that go? Well, it leads us then to we want to be united in his resurrection. And so resurrection brings new life. Physical death, if, if we died in Jesus, actually physically died, it ends any opportunity to live in obedience. It ends any opportunity, because we're dead. Just as much as physical death would end the opportunity to sin, physical death would end the opportunity for a believer to live in righteousness here. Well, this is really easily seen with a criminal, right? If we have some uh, murderer or something, they've been condemned to die, and they put them to death, well, they can't kill anybody else anymore. But they also can't live righteously anymore. Like, it's over. It ends. Now we're in eternity. And so resurrection in Christ is a demonstration that we have, been we have died to the power and the control of sin over us, but we've also now in Jesus been resurrected in him to live in newness of life. To, united, to be united in resurrection is to be united in service to God. Resurrection then signals freedom. It demonstrates total Freedom. Christ didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. And so we then are freed from the bondage of sin. Verse 8. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This is why when we give the gospel, we say repent and believe, turn and follow. Our anticipation for a person is just like we talked about last week. A three-ton logging truck smacking into you results in a different life. It's obvious. and Zacchaeus, when Jesus goes to his, his um, house, and, and many of us grew up in church where we heard that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbs up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? And as the Lord came passing by, he looked up in that tree. And what's he say? Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. They get to Zacchaeus' house, who has short man syndrome. And he's wielded power in an, in an ungodly way. And he's stolen money from all kinds of people. He's now in the very presence of Jesus. We're not even told of the gospel plea that Jesus makes to him. What we're told is suddenly Zacchaeus says, I'm a wicked man and I've stolen money. I'm paying back seven times what I've stolen. I'm giving it all back and I won't do it anymore. And Jesus recognizes salvation has come to this man. Why? Because he is now different. Is Zacchaeus perfect? No. He's not perfect, but he's now different. He's changed. He's transformed. Like, Jesus physically actually hasn't even died or resurrected yet, but salvation has always been the same. He has literally in that moment died to the power and the control of his sin. Sin in Zacchaeus' life to steal money, to seek power, to abuse power, to pursue wealth, to make life all about here and me and now. And now he's been gloriously transformed. I'm going to make life about something else. And that something else is the glory of God and holiness. He's resurrected to live free. We are resurrected in Christ so that we have freedom. Resurrection is a new permanent life. He emphasizes it this way in verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You die one time, that's it. Right? Uh, the, you know, some of you are thinking, well, I see stories in the news all the time about people that have died like multiple. I died six times on the way to the hospital. Okay. Okay. Chill. What you don't see happening is someone going to the city morgue, opening up the cold storage, pulling out a drawer, and waving a magic wand or hitting that. You can hit them with electric paddles all you want. It ain't getting off the table. So we're not talking about in the process of death through chemical means, electronic means, we're able to jumpstart the heart. When a person's dead, they're dead. Used to be a time when science, we didn't really understand how to determine death. And they would actually bury people with a rope that went down into the casket that was attached to a bell in the graveyard. So if they had messed up and the person woke up, they could ring the bell. How creepy is that? I mean, let's just be honest. We know the prank I'd be pulling. I'd be out there midnight ringing a bell in the corner of that graveyard, watching the graveyard keeper just go nuts. Like, that just would be hilarious. Some of you are like, that is not even funny. I know, I'm a sick human being, but that is funny. It's funny. Um, but they didn't know. The reality is now we know. We know. We know. He's saying Jesus died once. Well, then he rose again. Satan doesn't get another shot at him. It's over. Well, guess what? That's true for you and me spiritually. You can't lose your salvation. Having died once, death has no more dominion over him. He's now resurrected. We died in him. We are now resurrected. It's a permanent spiritual reality. Verse 10, 
The death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. That points us to the next truth. This is a spiritual state for us. Verse 11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to unpack that one more in just a minute, but I want to just go to the last section here. This actually has practical ramifications. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. Look, just see those words there. Let not sin, therefore, reign. All this truth he has been shoving into us is like sitting in driver's ed class and being told all the truth before you ever get in the car. It's, it's learning a new job and having to sit through mind-numbing movies of how to do the job before you ever are let free on the floor. It's me working as, they call it a mechanics helper in drywall. They're called drywall mechanics, learning how to frame, read blueprints. I held the end of a chalk line and rolled up more extension cords than I can count, carried more drywall before I ever got to make one cut, before I ever got to lay down one piece of track, before I ever got to plumb one stud. It was information is shoved into you before you're allowed to do. And in our longing for the actions of my life to be different, sometimes we run from the truth input too soon. Paul's done all of this work, and I've taken all this time in the sermon, the vast majority of the sermon, to make sure the truth is packed in. But he wants it also to be practical, and so do we. He's tackled two categories. What does it mean to be united in his death? And what does it mean to be united in his resurrection? He's saying we should know this truth. He's saying we should remember this truth. This truth should be always kept in front of us. He wants us to understand the implications of this truth. What does it look like in a believer's life if they disconnect that truth from daily life? What does that look like? What do our lives look like? The actions of our lives, our how we deal with our neighbors, how we deal with our job, our marriage, our singleness, our money. What does, how we, whether we use our spiritual gifts or not, whether we talk about Jesus with one another, whether we express gratitude. What does our life look like if we forget this truth? It looks like Romans 7. That which I would do, I do not. And that which I know I shouldn't do, I keep doing. Paul uses himself as a living illustration of Romans 7 of what our life looks like as a Christian if we disconnect all this truth input from daily life. This is imperative. So verse 11 says this, You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's the first practical instruction that he's giving here. And the practical instruction is consider this. What does that mean? So I want to connect this. I want to build the bridge. So Paul, what does consider mean? Well, it may help you to know what that word means. It literally means to credit something to an account or to write something down, to take notes on this truth. It is to think about. It is to meditate on the truth. It's to find ways to remember this truth every day of your life. I say every day of your life because we live life every day. Now, the reality is this. If you will take even the next 
remaining six weeks and make this a practice to invest in your life. Scientists have shown if you will do something consistently over the span of seven weeks, it will become a habit that's hard to break. The truth is this, this driving this into on a daily basis, I am dead, I am dead in Christ, I, the power of sin no longer controls me, I'm dead to the dominion of it, the chains have been broken, I'm alive in Christ, I'm alive. Finding ways to make this part of your daily download will begin to radically transform the way you live. Absolutely. So the question becomes, what are some ways that I could do that? I'll just throw some simple ones at you. Um, you could pray with this with your children on the way to school or as a family around a dinner table. Think something like this, God, thank you we don't have to live controlled by sin because Jesus conquered sin for us. That's simple. You could put a sticky note in your bathroom mirror. You are dead to sin and alive in Christ, so live that out today. You could put a note on your coffee maker. You could put a phone reminder into your calendar. Steve, you are now dead in Christ. You are alive also in Christ. Live like it. Oh, okay. You could put it as a simple prayer and tape it to the dashboard of your car or your truck or if you're cool, your Jeep, I guess. I don't know. Um, my Taurus. <laughs> um, you need to find ways to put this daily into your life and your reminders but then we also, also want to think about how it is connected. It is immensely practical. Paul talks now about a believer not yielding their members as instruments of unrighteousness. Let not therefore, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not, as a super radical, do not present your members as sin to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. He is saying we should think of our physical bodies, our, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our mouths as instruments. And you could take that word and you could actually translate it two ways. You could translate it like a garden tool and a garden implement. Um, don't yield your hands like wheelbarrows, like hoes, like rakes. Um, for unrighteousness. There's another way you could translate the word that I found more helpful in my memory bank. You could also translate it as weapon. Oh. Don't yield my hands, my mouth, my eyes, like swords and spears for unrighteousness. Suddenly it makes wonderful sense when the most common example when Jesus and the apostles want to demonstrate what it looks like for sin to be in us coming out of us, now think about this, sin in us coming out of us is what it means to be in the flesh, as opposed to union with Christ, Christ in us coming out of us, the one, the illustration they go after the most is our tongues. What does Jesus say? Whatever's coming out of your mouth is what is in your heart. And so that's actually the easiest one for we could go to. We could actually think of it this way. Our words express whether we are living out the reality of death or life in Christ. Proverbs talks a lot about our words and our tongues being weapons, swords, arrows, spears. James addresses the destructive power like a flame that starts a forest fire. When we sin, damage happens. There's damage to our relationship with God and others and to ourselves. Paul is telling us that the powerful truth of our union with Christ plays a critical role 
and these physical bodies becoming powerful weapons for the good of God. What is the critical reality of this in verse 14? That I no longer have to use this body as a slave to sin. I no longer have to be ruled by it because I'm now under grace. What does that look like in real time? I, I, I could try to explain to you, but I think John Piper in a devotional he gave does a wonderful job with that. Of course, it's not going to play now. We even tested it beforehand. Try it one more time here. Nope, it's not going to do it. Don't know why. Let me explain it this way. He says that grace is both pardon and power. He goes to 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It's actually not even about your effort. The same grace that saves you is the same grace that transforms you. Grace forgives you of your sin, but it also empowers you to use your bodies as weapons for righteousness. I believe the first greatest practical application in your life would be for you to meditate on this reality and how it can work out practically. And so in just a minute, my wife's going to come. She's going to play the piano. We're actually going to end a little bit different this morning, which actually helps because we don't have a song leader. Um, but I want to give you a few minutes to think through this a little bit and to meditate on this reality. And you could actually even go back to the list I gave you at the start. Steve, I need help overcoming sin. I need help with how I do marriage or parenting. I need help to learn how to resolve conflict, how to make financial decisions, how to run my calendar, how to choose a career, how to handle my obnoxious neighbor. And I actually want to encourage you to think of an area of sin in your life a habitual sin bent, a sin that clings close to you, lust, anger, gluttony, laziness, apathy, bitterness. How is this sin exercising power over you? That's where I want you to start. How does this sin exercise power over me? What lies is it telling me? What truth is it masking from me? And what would it look like? What would it look like if it no longer had power in my life? Bethany, would you come? And I want you to take a few minutes to begin to think through those truths. What is this area that seems to wield so much control in your life? What would it look like if the bondage of its power were gone forever? What would your life look like if you no longer were ensnared by it? What would it look like if that constant cycle of arguing with that person in your life was broken? How would you describe what that relationship would look like?
like if you used your hands, your mouths, as weapons in God's glorious army? What would it look like if you used your talents and your gifts to advance his kingdom? What would it look like to no longer be afraid, anxious, Father, we thank you that you do not leave us enslaved to our sin. And God, if I'm honest, there are areas in my life where it is hard to even imagine what life would look like to be free from the bondage that exists in my life. To, to be able to walk no longer enslaved by sin just feels fantastic. And, and yet there's a part of my heart that is weak in faith and wants to say, is that really possible? But God, I believe what your word says is true. And I believe that the power of sin in my life died with Jesus. But also, Father, I believe that the power to walk in righteousness exists in me because I resurrected with Jesus. God, thank you that you don't just leave truth there in our minds, but you want to attach it and you want to build a bridge to how it impacts our daily lives. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to begin the process of remembering these truths, counting them to be true, and also beginning to respond to the grace of Christ in us to walk in newness of life. Thank you for these truths. Thank you, Father, that being united with Christ is Christ in us, coming out of us, and that that affects every relationship in my life. Father, help us to be a people who embrace, who deepen our understanding and respond to that truth in a profound way. We pray this together in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You are dismissed.